Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. I am so excited for this episode today because we're going to go kind of outside of our typical structure of what we do, and I am going to interview Melissa on a kind of professional but also personal level. We had gotten some feedback on the podcast about just wanting to know the hosts on a different level and know a little bit more about them. Um, so we're going to take the time to do that today. Mm-hmm. Melissa, how are you feeling about an interview? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling good. You know me, I like to talk, so. <laughs> so I think this will be easy. We're both talkers, mm-hmm. and hopefully all of you that are listening are interested. I feel like if you're therapists out there, you're probably interested in people's stories. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, we'll just get a little bit about Melissa's story, and then maybe down the line we'll switch, switch. roles and do that yep. again. Yeah. So I guess first, just will you describe a little bit about your childhood, adolescence, kind of what was life like for you growing up? Mm-hmm. So the <clears throat> the standout points would be that I didn't grow up in the U.S. Uh, my parents were missionaries, and so I was in Southeast Asia from, well, as early as I can remember. We went over there when I was four months old, and we didn't come back um, other than for visiting family and things like that. We didn't come back until I was 16, so I transitioned to... America when I was 16 years old so hard and a freshman in high school Ah. it was not the ideal time (laughs) yeah so that was a slightly bumpy transition um, mostly because I look like I'm an American but very much was not Um, so there was a lot of culture shock that went into that Um, I like to think that that experience helped me become an observer of people and uh, I utilize that skill quite a bit so um, that is my reframe of that uh-huh. rather trying experience. <laughs> <laughs> How would you say or those thing those experiences have had a direct contribution to the work that you do, or have they? They absolutely have. So um, in my practice, probably about a third of my practice um, is with other missionary kids okay. um, or children, family of uh, clergy, things like that, because... Um, there are some pretty unique challenges to that lifestyle and some things that uh, contribute to mental health struggles later in life. Yeah. Um, and so I do. I, I see that population a lot. And because of the nature of it, it really makes a difference when you can say, oh, you don't need to explain that. I already know. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I know what it means to you know, be a third grader and have your entire class wanting you to talk because you have a funny accent. Um, you know, just funny little things like that, that are really formative when you're young. Um, that if you try to share that with somebody that things are lost in translation. And so having somebody that already knows and already kind of has that kinship and it's that way for a lot of things in that particular area is one of mine. And I really focus on that population because of it. So when you came back to the United States, did you come back to Springfield? Was that? I did. Okay. Yep. So I've been here since I was 16. I learned about America from Springfield, Missouri. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And it's home now. I've been here, you know, longer than I was overseas. And so I absolutely consider it home. Um, But yeah, yeah. 
other home is the Oregon coast. That's where I was actually born and where family is. So I spent a lot of time there. Mm -hmm. So what's life look like for you now? Like introduce Mm -hmm. your family to us or the day to day. So, um, most of my time is split between work and my baby girl. Um, so I do, I own a private practice and, um, also co-own an art studio that the private practice is housed in. Um, and then Jen and I spend a lot of time doing consulting and EMDR training and things like that. Um, but also I have a two year old who is perfect in every way. And I think we'll come up here in a minute because becoming a mommy was the single most traumatic experience of my life. Um, and we'll go into why that was my daughter decided to make quite a splash entering this world. Um, and so if ever there was an opportunity for me to believe in what EMDR can do, that that was my moment. Um, so yeah, she's perfect and healthy and wonderful now. Um, but yeah, she's taught me a lot. Still does every day. And she is so smart. <laughs> she has so more words smart. than than seems reasonable. So I was eavesdropping on her the other day and uh, heard her count to 17. And she'll be two at the end of this week. So <laughs> yeah, as moms, we all think our kids are smart. And then you hear her talk. And you're like, wow. Yeah, it's, it's a little astounding because she because of all of her health challenges, she's kind of small for her age. And then she has a lot of extra words. And so there's some cognitive dissonance that yeah, happens when you're like is. looking at this tiny person with full sentences and <laughs> very clear articulation. Um, yeah, she's a trip. She's wonderful. So what are you pursuing professionally right now? Everything. Okay. Um, so yeah, I tend to have fingers in a lot of pies and that's the way I like it. I think for, for those of us that are in private practice, one of the huge advantages of that is that we get to do a lot of different things. So, um, I teach, I teach at one of the universities here in town. I teach, uh, EMDR trainings, obviously. Um, and then I do consultation. I do, um, supervision. I supervise some PLPCs, which is a lot of fun. I really like it. And then on top of that, I see clients, um, and all the podcasting stuff that I do. So yeah, I, I think one, t- one day I actually made a list, um, of all the different things that I'm doing and it's right around nine, you know, it's a healthy number, I think <laughs> keeps me from getting bored, which, um, yeah, a little bit of personality. My number one enemy in life is boredom, which means that I get a lot done, but also sometimes I'm chronically sick because I won't, you know, slow down, down and, and, yeah. and rest. And also my home is a disaster because I won't slow down and just clean it. Um, so well, yeah. that just made you all the more relatable. <laughs> <laughs> right. I might get a lot done outside of the house, but then you see my laundry pile and I'm human. <laughs> you didn't mention, so I'm going to mention it for you. You're pursuing a new like cranial therapy. Yeah. So, you know, once I get pretty comfortable with one modality, it's time to learn the next one. Um, so craniosacral therapy is a uh, treatment modality that has mostly been reserved for massage therapists, chiropractors, physical therapists, etc. But they have really promising research for PTSD um, and have been doing a lot of work with some veterans and symptoms of PTSD. And so I thought, what the heck, I'll see if they're going to let me get trained in this. Um, and they were surprised that a mental health therapist was calling, but they let me do it. And I had to, you know, call my licensing board and I kept getting passed up and up and up because no one felt comfortable telling me that I could do it. And finally, I got to the very top and she said, yes, you can. Um, And so I just recently completed the level one training and I've started using that in my practice. And it is phenomenal. Hmm. Basically, it is like a massage for your nervous system. So it does use touch. 
Um, but the amount of touch is incredibly light. So it's about the weight of a nickel. It's, it's super duper light. Um, Jen actually was a good sport and let me practice on her. So <laughs> and anytime you want to do it, you can. I'm here. Uh-huh. But the main result that a lot of people experience is that you're sort of manually relaxing the central nervous system and balancing the two sides of the autonomic nervous system, which for anybody with PTSD or anxiety is just wonderful. Um, and so I use it in conjunction with other therapies, never just by itself. And my focus is always on emotional and mental health things. But as we know, there's so much overlap between um, body-based issues and uh, mental health that it's not hard for me to find a reason. Right. So, right. yeah, so that that is kind of a new adventure that I'm on, and that'll continue. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you, and I feel like you spoke about this briefly, but in, if there's anything else, what's really inspired you to do this work? Like trauma work is really hard work. Mm-hmm. So what's been your, what's inspiring you to do that? Yeah, so when I was in college, I actually started my undergraduate um as pre-med. I was very focused on uh, medicine, wanted to be a naturopathic doctor, had a graduate um, school all picked out in Seattle, Washington. I had the plan. Um, And then when I was a sophomore in college, I actually was sexually assaulted twice, two weeks apart, two different people, totally different situations, and obviously was not functioning well after that, um, and found a tremendous therapist. I actually worked with two different ones. Um, and it was in the midst of that whole experience that I realized, oh, this is what I want to do. Um, and as you know, for most of us, it is a personal story that brings us into this work. But for me, it was never a question of what population I wanted to focus on. Um, because through that whole thing, number one, I learned that there was way more of us than was talked about. Um, number two, I also knew that it was really, really hard to find good help. And it took me a year and a half. As usual, it took me six months to tell anybody <clears throat> at all. So there was that uh, limitation. But also, by the time I was ready to find help, it still took me many, many months to find somebody that was really a good fit yeah. and that knew what to do um, other than, you know, just let me talk about it, which was not helping And uh, so it was that whole experience that led me straight to, you know, this is the field that I want to work in, but more importantly, the population that I want to focus on. Um, So yeah, for just like for most of us, it was a personal story. You know, I honestly wasn't expecting you to share that, but I appreciate it so much because I think that just opens the door for conversation like that. I mean, as therapists, there's usually, as you said, something that motivates us into Mm -hmm. that field and really inspires us in some experience, whether it's that or, you know, anything else, but some experience where you, you think, okay, this has helped me and I want to pass that Mm -hmm. on. I want to do something like this. It connects. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just appreciate your openness Mm -hmm. to share that with everybody. Part of my self-care to talk about it openly. It isn't for everybody, but it helps me. Mm Yeah. Yeah. How does your background in trauma therapy impact just the day-to-day life? So not necessarily the work you do with your clients, but just kind of day-to-day, or does it have any impact? You know, I think it does, but kind of in a roundabout way. Um, Obviously, we all have to resist the temptation to be everybody's therapist, and uh, me maybe more than most. I have to remember to bite my tongue quite a bit. Um, I think personally, the biggest impact that it's had is that part of being a good trauma therapist is knowing what healthy looks like Mm. and having to really figure out things like 
okay, if I'm going to tell people they have to have healthy boundaries, what do I mean when mm-hmm. I say that? Mm-hmm. If I tell people that they need to, you know, heal their codependent tendencies, am I doing that? <laughs> Um, And so for me, it has been a lot of personal work of transformation of really making sure that I have done my own work in regards to um, codependent tendencies, which I had and have uh, a lot of um, that savior mentality because of being raised as a missionary kid Mm -hmm, like that that hits you real hard. Um, the idea that I am responsible for somebody else, um, you know, not only their health, but also their eternal soul, you know, throw that in, no pressure. <clears throat> so I think I came by it pretty honestly, but, uh, but yeah, that's a, a huge thing that I've had to resist and work through. And now I am almost a little bit militant about um, boundaries for myself and making sure that I respect the boundaries of other people and their right to push back against me when I cross that because I'm human and I do. Um, And also in the way that I parent, um, I will put in a plug for somebody that has been pretty life-changing for me. It's a parenting, um, well, I call her my guru. I don't know what she would call herself. Her name is Janet Lansbury. And she actually has a podcast as well called Unruffled and some books about parenting Um, And her work comes from um, some other parenting researchers, but she calls it respectful parenting. Mm -hmm. And to me, when I read about it, the thing that just stood out to me was, oh, this is how you raise children to be trauma resilient right here. This is it. Like if I was to intentionally inoculate someone against PTSD, this is what I would do. Wow. And so she just kind of spells out exactly what to do from the time that they, you know, come out of you quite literally, like she she starts the day they're born, um, inoculating them for things like uh, body autonomy, and the the right and ability to say no, um, the right to have freedom of movement in my body, um, but also that as we respect them and their little selves, that is also training them to respect other people. Mm -hmm. That it's not that they just have freedom to do whatever the heck they want to do, but guiding them with respect for themselves actually teaches them to do it for other people. So simple things like you never tell your children to say thank you, you say thank you to them when they do something that elicits that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was kind of my first big test was to see like, does that actually work? We'll see. Um, but you know, Nora started saying please and thank you just over a year old. And I had never asked her to say that in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I saw that in action, I really bought in. And, uh, to me, it's been, you know, healing personally. Um, and I also use it a lot, uh, in sessions to coach people like this is what relationships are supposed to feel like, right? Yeah. Whether it's with your kids or even with your partner, like all of the principles still apply, Um, And so for me, the work that I've done around things like boundaries and respect and how to do healthy intimacy, that comes straight out of my trauma history. Hmm. And uh, that's how I stay inoculated against it and how I hope to do that for other people, too. Will you say that name and podcast book Mm -hmm. again? Janet Lansbury. Um, The book that I started with was it's called No Bad Kids, uh, Toddler Discipline Without Shame. Okay. And, um, and that is a big piece of it is the way that we parent, making sure that we're not accidentally motivating with shame. Um, and yeah, it's just beautiful. Her podcast is called Unruffled. Okay. Yeah, I am good stuff. making note of that. <laughs> we it, all need help in the parenting oh, category. That so. sounds like really good material mm-hmm. too. It really is. good material. 
You mentioned a little bit earlier about your experience with trauma with your daughter Mm -hmm. and her birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything you would want to share about that and just that how EMDR played a part in you healing from that? Yeah. So um, Anora was uh, a day old, not even quite a day old. And she went into, uh, well, she had a, a heart defect called pulmonary atresia where she does not, did not and does not have a pulmonary valve. And as you can imagine, that has some pretty significant um, dangerous effects. And so she was less than a day old and uh, her oxygen levels were dropping, excuse me, really, really quickly. And so, you know, they rushed us to NICU. Um, She was life flighted from Springfield to St. Louis. Um, And we met them up there. Um, So for, for my experience of it, I had just had a baby and, you know, got the news that she may not make it um, and then had to be in the backseat of a car driving to St. Louis within about 36 hours of giving birth. Mm. <laughs> um, so it, it was a tremendous physical toll. Um, you know, my birth, frankly, was as easy as I could have hoped for. It was the dream birth, but still, I had just had a baby. Um, so physically, it was really, really challenging. Um, and then the emotional component on top of that of just the absolute fear and terror. I I do not know if there's any other uh, experience that matches the terror that, you know, you feel when your kid is in danger. Um, and so we, we were in the hospital for three weeks that first time. Um, we were home 10 days and then she went into cardiac arrest uh, while I was holding her the second time. So we were life flighted again. Spent another two to three weeks in the hospital that second time. Um, Luckily, she is more than perfect now. She has a tiny little murmur, and they can kind of hear it sometimes. She, you know, sees her cardiologist once every six months, and he's been, um, you know, thrilled with her progress. She runs a little bit low on oxygen, um, but it really doesn't seem to bother her at all. And her blood pressure runs high, but she is a huge fan of taking her medicine, which I don't know how I got so lucky. She gives it to herself. Um, but because of all of that, as you can imagine, both my husband and I came out with some symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we actually kind of made the strategic choice that my husband would do EMDR first. Um And there were a lot of reasons why we chose to do that. I could tell that I was still in a little bit of just kind of don't talk to me about feeling better. I need to know that my baby's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could feel that in myself and know that there would be some resistance there. And also just the significant sleep deprivation that was going on between the anxiety and she was a normal baby and, you know, didn't sleep, um, that I knew that that would be a limitation as well. So as soon as we kind of got back in the swing of life, um, we, we had him start EMDR and he, you know, did all of the major targets around her, her birth, um, her hospitalizations. And then also around, you know, seeing me in that situation and feeling kind of helpless, um, to really do anything to be able to help me or her. Um, so he did his batch of therapy. And then um, as soon as he was done, I went in and did mine. Um, yeah, and that whole experience of doing EMDR on that trauma for me, I don't know that there was anything that could have so thoroughly convinced me that EMDR mm-hmm. is something unexplainably powerful um, because there's truly no other trauma quite as terrifying as, as what I had went through. So to me, it was kind of the ultimate test. Um, and 
I still feel a lot of emotion when I think about what we went through. But what I don't feel is the panic. What I don't feel is the urge to check on her every hour when she's sleeping. Um, what I don't experience is a week of depression and anxiety leading up to every uh, doctor's appointment yeah. um, because of the fear of what we might found out. I don't panic every time I hear a helicopter go overhead, that kind of thing. Um, so for me, that was just hugely transformational in my understanding of just how much EMDR could do and, and how it does it. Um, because being on the receiving end of it, you know, we all are in our training, but rarely, are, and we really shouldn't be picking targets that extraordinarily right. huge, right? Um, and so feeling what it feels like to go from a set of nine to a set of zero on something as major as, you know, your child going into cardiac arrest while you're holding her, right? Because that was kind of the big one for mm-hmm. me. Um to feel what that feels like and what actually happens was beyond transformational, both as a mom and a human being, but also as a clinician and really, really trusting the process that just because I cannot intellectually understand how in the world this is going to be possible, the brain will find a way (laughs) with the right support. Um, And it did. It absolutely did. And I could not have told you that the pivotal moment when, you know, I finally got to a zero was actually what I would consider kind of a a spiritual vision, which you hear clients report on this a lot, but it's Mm -hmm. a totally different thing when you're the one experiencing it. Um, And it was this vision that I had of, you know, Anora's in the little hospital bed with probably nine people surrounding her trying to stabilize her. after she went into a rest and I'm sitting on the awful plastic, you know, bench that's in the room. And I, you know, I can feel that there's people around me, but the vision that I had was that in that moment, she and I were the same being Hmm. and I'll get emotional now, not because I'm sad, but because it was really powerful. Um, What I saw was that her body and my body was experiencing the same thing in that moment. (laughs) Sorry, guys, didn't plan on that. Um, And it was the energetic flow of mom energy to baby energy. And just really feeling in such a concrete way that at that stage in their development, we are the same being. Mm -hmm. Um, And it explains so much about what I felt like in those first several days that when I wasn't in her room, I couldn't breathe. Right. Um, And I felt, you know, tremendous guilt not being in the room with her. Um, And yet I had all the nurses telling me, you have to go sleep. (laughs) You have to go eat. And I I knew that. And of course I do. But you try it and you see how it feels, you know. Um, But it was like that image explained the whole experience to me. Like, oh, that's what happened. And it also made me really confident. that even though there wasn't a lot that I could do, right? I'm, I'm just standing there witnessing this happening to her, that my protection was with her mm-hmm. the whole time. Yes. That my, you know, my love and my energy and my, you know, mama willpower mm-hmm. that she would survive was working with her in that moment. And it w- none of that was cognitive. There was no cognition that explained what was happening. It was purely an image and a feeling that I had in my body 
of the energetic flow that was happening between Mm -hmm. us and that um, we were perfectly entangled in the way that a mom and a newborn should be. Um, And so it was, it was just this tremendous moment of, I have a ton of feeling about it um, and activation in my body, but it felt so good Mm -hmm. that I couldn't call it distress. Um, And that, that after that, after that particular target, that's when the generalization happened for me. When, you know, all the other targets that we worked on after that were so much lower and smaller than, you know, they were at the beginning because I had that as the anchor to hold on to. Um, and so it did. It taught me a lot about how EMDR takes these huge traumas and transforms them um, and teaches us, right, teaches the the person going through the EMDR process something about who they really are mm-hmm. and how things really work. Um, and so, of course, you know, if I had it over to do again, I would never choose that for her. But it's almost kind of hard to regret some of the things that came out of it. Um, so, yeah, that's my EMDR story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I've known you and I know we've talked about that before but I sit here again just listening with goosebumps right well and any parent like any parent trying to imagine going through that it it is exactly what you think it is it is it is that bad um but yeah and to hear the way you talk about it today is just all of the evidence in the world Mm -hmm. of the power of EMDR therapy for you yeah it really is to hear you describe it in that way in that last line that you just said I wouldn't choose that for her mm-hmm. but it's hard to not see all the good oh, that have come through that yeah that is what trauma how it's supposed to be stored that's, that's right. what healing that's is right in that's a what nutshell. it really looks like yeah well the other thing that it does is that when we you know face and encounter things as a parent um it helps us feel less um out of control and helpless for instance as one would expect Honora has some ramifications and you know stuff that she deals with The only thing that is very significant for her at this point is she has a phobia of loud noises, particularly planes going overhead, helicopters going Mm -hmm. overhead. We were at Wonders of Wildlife yesterday, and they had a video that had a bear growl on it, and that's remarkably similar to the sound of a, you know, helicopter. Um, And she does not like it. She spends a lot of time telling me about loud noises. Mommy, loud noise. Yes, that's a loud noise. Um, And so... What I have started doing is every time that she feels activated about that, we tap. And I've told my husband, I've told her grandparents when she's, you know, upset about a loud noise, I just want you to do this and helping her to start transitioning through that, that body reaction. Um, and she'll have no memory of what she went through, but her body does remember that piece of it. And she was, you know, tiny. She was seven pounds in a helicopter. And I can only imagine the roar that that was to her. Um, with no mom body to help regulate her nervous mm-hmm. system. And yeah, she had sedatives, but I'm sorry, her body's still experiencing that. That's still coming into her ears and to her nervous system. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, well, I know what to do. You know, I don't have to panic that my child is going to be scarred for life because of this experience. Right. I have a something that I really believe in. Um, and will it take a while? Maybe, maybe not, right? Um and so, yeah, I think there, there's that, too, that it makes us really confident that we're not helpless yeah. when we face those big things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And to just be able to hear your story and what you experienced just sharing that takes this idea that 
we go through trauma and by doing EMDR therapy, we're going to take all emotion out of it and mm-hmm. it's going to become, we're going to take something negative like and robotic. make it positive. Yeah. yeah. And we're just going to turn it off um, or any of the myths about, you know, erasing it from, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things. Mm-hmm. But to say you have big emotion in oh, that, yeah. but it's, it's emotion that brings meaning. Yeah. Um, it has a really big purpose rather than it being distress yes. and disturbance yes. and discomfort. Mm-hmm. It's big emotion that you would never want to lose that. No. Um, no. And you don't have to lose it by going through this process and healing from mm-hmm. it. You actually get to experience the beauty, the, the emotions that are so beautiful right. more thoroughly Agreed. because they're less disguised by the panic and the fear and anxiety. I would say the biggest emotions when I think about it now besides just tremendous love, right, then that would be expected, is gratitude mm-hmm. um, for all of it. I feel gratitude for the nurse that, you know, figured out that there was something wrong with her and, you know, basically personally ushered us through the ER straight into NICU, right? Yeah. And for the doctor, all the doctors, um, for you know, just, I can think of a million people. Mm-hmm. And that's the funny thing is that, my memories of it are actually very clear. And when I think about it now, it's just intense gratitude for all the things that made it a little bit more tolerable. Um, and the huge things that meant that she survived because that was not a guarantee for most of the time. And so I do like, that's the number one emotion is just such relief and gratitude. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What what a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to segue into some rapid-fire questions, mm-hmm. which mean they're pretty lighthearted. Uh, this, all this other stuff has been more deep of getting mm-hmm. to know you on a deeper level, and this will be just getting to know you on a surface level, I guess. Okay. My favorite so. color is green. <laughs> Actually, I think – no, I didn't put that one in there. <laughs> um, uh-huh. So we'll just kind of flip through these pretty quickly. What is your office decor or style? Uh, color. As much of it as possible. Like I said, I work in an art studio, and so the more color, the better. And my art changes regularly, so it keeps it very fresh, which I like. What are your favorite types of food or favorite restaurant? Spicy. And like I said, grew up in Asia, so anything that you know makes me feel like I'm on fire is getting close. Um, so Thai food and then Indian food. Mm-hmm. What do you do to transition from work to home? Um, that would be music in the car. And also, I'll be honest, I don't very well. So my, (laughs) (laughs) my, my transition moment is actually when I get home, I set down my bags and Honora comes running like that moment is Mm -hmm. okay. I'm in mommy mode and thank God I am. I'm really ready for it by the end of the day. Um, so usually I'm like finishing up phone calls and things like that in the car on the way home. Uh And then I get home put down my bags. That's the moment. Mm-hmm. So with the music, um, is there a certain song that you love right now or any specific song that you find to be inspirational or mm-hmm. healing? So the song from The Greatest Showman, This mm-hmm. Is Me. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, slightly older song from Sarah. I never say her last oh, name. Oh, I right? know who you're talking about. Barry too. Alice. Bur- Bur- <laughs> I'm not even going to try. <laughs> you guys know who I mean. Her last name starts with a B and it's very long. Um, anyway, it's called... Uh, brave i believe mm-hmm. and there's a quote from that song that says show me how big your brave is and that might be like on post-it notes around in my life to to help I when i need it. to do big things that's great mm-hmm. what leisure book are you reading right now or most recently mm-hmm. no, textbooks. EM, no, no textbooks <laughs> no emdr therapy books. uh then um the most recent one would be the very hungry caterpillar <laughs> 
have not done a lot of leisure reading for myself at the moment, no. Okay. We got a lot of Elmo and uh, Daniel Tiger going on. <laughs> All right, we'll take it. What are some of your favorite TV shows? Um, oh, this one's easy. So I am completely obsessed with two TV shows, Great British Begging Show and any British murder mystery. So okay. Midsummer Murders, Agatha Christie, Poirot, all that stuff. I eat it up. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see here. What's your favorite quote? Mm. So this is one that should feel familiar to you guys because uh, Brene Brown just repopularized it with her book, Daring Greatly, but it's the uh, quote by Theodore Roosevelt um, called The Man in the Arena. And it's kind of a long one, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, but the start of it is, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, and it goes on and on and talks about... Um, mm you know, getting in the arena and being willing to fail, even fail publicly and spectacularly um, with the goal of making great changes. And to me, it's an alignment quote about remembering um, whose voices need to be loud in my head and whose voices I need to ignore. Love Mm -hmm. it. That's great. I'll have to open it up and read the rest of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Who is someone that you look up to professionally or personally? Um, yeah. Okay. So this is going to feel like a total cop-out question or answer, but I, I'm not really into, um, I don't do a lot of like hero kind of people. Um, I tremendously look up to, I have a few clients that have taught me a lot about trying to heal even when the odds are against you. Um, and I, I, I think of them a lot as personal inspiration. Um, and so I would definitely say that, um, then the other one would be my sister. She is a mother of five children and she homeschools them all. And I think about her on days where I am overwhelmed by being a mommy of one. And I think, Melissa, get it together. (laughs) So yeah, to all you moms out there and multiple babies, you are my heroes. (laughs) Jen, you are one of those. <laughs> That's great to hear. I love what you say about your clients as being one of them. Um, I think our clients so underestimate the impact they have on our oh, lives. Yeah. yeah. And they think, you know, we're the ones who are having this impact. And mm-hmm. I try to just remind them so often that they change, excuse me, they change our lives yes. and they change us and the yes. way we look at the world mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. So they really great. do. Okay, well, that wraps up our rapid-fire questions and really just the interview altogether. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for letting me do this. Yeah, thank and you. for all that you shared. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, and we will be back again soon with another episode. Mm-hmm. Talk to you later. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time. Notice That.